Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classes of Mail. My name is Alan Gigax, and today we're going to read more from the JCAM. The plan for today is to read Articles 26 through 29, so let's get started. Article 26 is on uniforms and work clothes. 26.1, Section 1, Uniform Control Committee. The parties agree that the National Joint Labor Management Uniform Control Committee shall be continued. The committee shall be composed of a representative of the union and a representative of the employer. The chair of the committee shall alternate each meeting between the union and the postal service. The committee shall meet at least once each three months and at such other times as may be necessary or as requested by either of the parties. The committee shall have jurisdiction to consider the matters set out below and all non-cost matters pertaining to the Uniform Allowance Program, including, but not limited to, the uniform items or work clothes items for which allowances are applicable, the design, color, quality, and fabrics of authorized reimbursable items. All employees who are required to wear uniforms or work clothes shall be furnished uniforms or work clothes or shall be reimbursed for purchase of authorized items from duly licensed vendors. The current administration of the uniform and work clothes program shall be continued unless otherwise changed by this agreement or by the employer based on recommendations of the committee. Wearout periods for Uniform items being changed or replaced shall be determined by the committee and appropriate recommendations made after giving full consideration to the type of changes being made, the economic effect upon the employees involved for replacement, and the overall appearance of the uniform. The committee shall establish its own rules of procedure. Recommendations of the committee shall be addressed to the Postmaster General or his designee. Uniform Program and National Committee Article 26.1 guarantees the continuation of the current uniform and work clothes program whose detailed regulations are contained in ELM Section 930. It also sets up a joint NALC-USPS committee at the national level to discuss this topic and recommend changes in the uniform program. 26.2, Section 2, Annual Allowance. The annual allowance for eligible employees in the reimbursable uniform program shall be as follows. A. Effective May 21, 2021, the annual allowance for all eligible employees shall be increased from $464 per annum to $487 per annum. This, the increase shall become effective on the, employers and, on the employee's anniversary date. Effective May 21, 2022, the annual allowance for all eligible employees shall be increased from $487 per annum to $499 per annum. The increase shall become effective on the employee's anniversary date. Anniversary date. B. A newly eligible employee entering the reimbursable uniform program will receive an additional credit to the employee's allowance as follows. Effective May 21, 2021, $113 if entitled to $487 per annum. Effective May 21, 2022. Oh, just a sec, that's for me. All right, I'm back. It turned out it was a telemarketer. No surprise there. I don't remember where I left off, but I think it was here. Uh, effective May 21st, 2022, $116 if entitled to the $499 per annum. An eligible employee cannot receive this additional credit more than once. However, the current procedures regarding employees transferring from one allowance category to another shall be continued. Uniform allowance. Each employee required to wear a uniform receives a uniform allowance. 
increased annually as listed above and credited on the employee's uniform allowance anniversary date, ELM section 935.11. The credit may then be spent at at approved uniform vendors who sell approved uniform items. Full-time and part-time letter carriers who work at least four hours per day performing letter carrier duties are eligible for the allowance. Newly eligible career employees receive an additional credit as listed above. A CCA converted to career status will receive the additional credit upon their first anniversary date after being converted. 26.3. Section 3 City Carrier Assistant. When the CCA has completed 90 work days or has been employed for 120 calendar days, whichever comes first, the CCA will be provided with an annual uniform allowance equal to the amount provided to career employees in Section 2.A. Time served as a transitional employee will count toward the 90-120 day requirement. The uniform purchases are reimbursed by the Postal Service directly to the vendor. Uniforms will be returned by CCAs, separated and not reappointed. CCA Uniforms A CCA becomes eligible for a uniform allowance upon completion of 90 workdays or 120 calendar days of employment as a CCA, whichever comes first. CCAs who have previously satisfied the 90-120 day requirement as a transitional employee with an appointment made after September 29, 2007, become eligible for a uniform allowance when they begin their first CCA appointment. Currently, when a CCA becomes eligible for a uniform allowance, funds must be approved through an e-buy submission by local management. After approval, a letter of authorization form must be completed by local management and provided to the employee within 14 days of the eligibility date. The CCA takes the completed form to a USPS authorized vendor to purchase uniform items. The letter of authorization can be located on the Uniform Program website on the blue page under Human Resources. Uniform uniform items can only be purchased from USPS licensed vendors. A list of all authorized Postal Service uniform vendors is located on the Human Resources website, Uniform Program from the blue page and also on light blue under My HR and look for the link for Uniform Program. The licensed vendor creates an itemized invoice of the sale, provides a copy of the invoice to the CCA, and sends the original invoice for payment to the local manager identified on the letter of authorization. I bet that's another telemarketer. Of course it is. Uh, There we go. Upon receipt, the local manager certifies the invoice and pays the vendor using the SmartPay card. The anniversary date for the purpose of annual uniform allowance eligibility for a CCA is the calendar date the CCA initially becomes eligible for a uniform allowance. Once established, the anniversary date does not change. Therefore, when a CCA is converted to career status, he or she retains the same anniversary date date held as a CCA. An exception to this rule occurs when a CCA is separated for lack of work and then rehired as a CCA after his or her anniversary date has passed. In this situation, a new anniversary date is established on the date of reappointment and the CCA is provided a full annual uniform allowance within 14 days of the new anniversary date. A CCA that is separated for lack of work and then rehired as a CCA before their next uniform anniversary date retains his or her anniversary date. If there is no uniform allowance balance remaining at the point of separation, the matter will be considered closed. If the CCA had any part of the annual uniform allowance available at the point of separation, the remaining balance will be redetermined upon reappointment as follows. If the period of separation exceeds 89 calendar days, 
the remaining balance will be reduced by 10% of the annual uniform allowance for the first 90 calendar days and then by 10% for each full 30 calendar days thereafter. In no event will such redetermination result in a negative balance for the employee. If a CCA does not use the full allowance before his or her appointment ends, the remainder of the annual uniform allowance carries over into the next CCA appointment as applicable, but must be used before the next uniform anniversary date. CCAs cannot purchase uniform items during their five-day, their five-calendar-day break. CCAs cannot purchase uniform items during their five-calendar-day break between appointments. If the full annual uniform allowance is not used before the next anniversary date, the remaining balance for that year is forfeited. CCAs who are converted to career status may keep any unused uniform allowance until their next uniform anniversary date, at which point any remaining balance will be forfeited. When the anniversary date is reached, employees are provided a purchase card containing their first annual uniform allowance as a career employee. CCAs do not receive the additional credit authorized under Article 26.2.B with their first uniform allowance following conversion to career status. Additional additional information related to procedures for obtaining CCA uniforms can be found in an internal USPS memo dated May 22, 2013, M-01822. And here is a memo between the USPS and the NALC regarding City Carrier Uniform Task Force. The parties recognize the importance of providing eligible city carriers with uniforms in a timely manner. The parties are committed to improving the efficiency and accessibility of the uniform program and to improving the overall quality of available uniform items in a cost-effective manner. To that end, the parties will establish a national-level task force for the purpose of evaluating the processes by which city carriers are issued uniforms. Specifically, the task force will explore modified or alternative methods for city carriers to obtain authorized uniform items, including evaluating ways that technology can be integrated into these processes. The task force will also explore ways to incorporate improved materials and uniform designs into the uniform program while continuing to supply city carriers with sufficient uniform items. The task force will consist of up to three members appointed by the NALC and up to three members appointed by the Postal Service. The task force will begin meeting within 30 days of ratification of the 2019 Collective Bargaining Agreement and will provide status reports that include recommendations to the NALC President and the Vice President Labor Relations or their designees on a quarterly basis. The task force will function during the term of the 2019 Collective Bargaining Agreement. The current payment and dispute practice for city letter carriers who receive a uniform allowance purchase card includes the employee uses the purchase card to purchase uniform items from a licensed vendor. If a problem arises concerning the items purchased, the employee contacts the uniform vendor. If the uniform vendor cannot resolve the problem, the employee may may contact the current credit card company. If the matter is not resolved by either the uniform vendor or the credit card company, the employee should contact the Postal Service Uniform Program by email at uniformprogram@usps.gov for further investigation. Disputes slash problems that involve contact with the credit card company or the Postal Service Uniform Program should be addressed on a no-loss, no-gain basis. Official uniform items can only be purchased from USPS licensed vendors. Currently, a list of all authorized Postal Service uniform vendors is located on light blue under MyHR. Then navigate to the link for uniform program. And there's a citation here. And that is the end of Article 26. So let's move on to Article 27, Employee Claims. 
Subject to a six. Oh, there's no number on this one because it's just the one the one part. I like these. These are nice and short. All right. So, Article 27, Employee Claims. Subject to a $60 minimum, an employee may file a claim within 14 days of the date of loss or damage and be reimbursed for loss or damage to his or personal property, except for motor vehicles and the contents thereof, taking into consideration depreciation where the loss or damage was suffered in connection with or incident to the employee's employment while on duty or while on postal premises. The possession of the property must have been reasonable or proper under the circumstances, and the damage or loss must not have been caused in whole or in part by the negligent or wrongful act of the employee. Loss or damage will not be compensated when it resulted from normal wear and tear associated with day-to-day living and working conditions. Claims should be documented, if possible, and submitted with recommendations by the union steward to the employer at the local level. The employer will submit the claim with the employer's and the steward's recommendation within 15 days to the Step B team for determination. An impasse on the claim may be appealed to arbitration pursuant to Article 15, Step B, D of this agreement. A decision letter impassing a claim in whole or in part will include notification of the union's right to appeal the decision to arbitration under Article 15. The Step B team will provide the national business agent a copy of the impasse referenced above, the claim form, and all documentation submitted in connection with the claim. The Step B team will also provide a copy of the impasse to the steward whose recommendation is part of the claim form. The above procedure does not apply to privately owned motor vehicles and contents thereof. For such claims, the employee may utilize the procedures of the Federal Tort Claims Act in accordance with Part 250 of the Administrative Support Manual. The procedure procedure specified therein shall be the exclusive procedure for such claims and shall not be subject to the grievance arbitration procedure. A tort claim may be filed on SF-95, which will be made available by the installation head or designee. The preceding article, Article 27, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Summary. A letter carrier whose personal property is lost or damaged at work may file a claim for reimbursement with the Postal Service. Article 27 sets forth the rules for such employee claims. 1. Personal property. The property must be personal property. This includes cash, jewelry, clothing, and carrier uniforms, as well as other items that are worn or otherwise brought to work. Personal property does not include automobiles. See automobile exclusion below. And here it is. Number two, automobile exclusion. Privately owned motor vehicles and their contents are excluded from Article 27 claims. However, if a letter carrier's automobile is damaged by, quote, the negligent or wrongful act, end quote, of the Postal Service, the carrier may seek recovery under the Federal Tort Claims Act. To initiate a tort claim, a carrier should complete and submit a standard form SF-95. Oh, that's what SF stands for, standard form. Uh, Anyway, note that the standard for establishing liability under the Tort Claims Act is different than the standard for reimbursement under Article 27 because they treat fault differently. The Postal Service must pay a claim under Article 27 unless it was, quote, caused in whole or in part by the negligent or wrongful act of the employee, end quote, whether or not there was also negligence on the part of the Postal Service. However, to recover under the tort claims procedure, the employee must establish that the damage was the fault of the Postal Service. Non-motorized vehicles are not considered privately owned vehicles within the meaning of Article 27. A claim for the loss or damage to non-motorized bicycles can be made and decided in accordance with the provisions of Article 27. And here's a citation. 
Three, reasonable possession at work and loss connected with employment. Under Article 27, possession of the personal property at work must have been reasonable or proper under the circumstances, and the loss or damage must have been suffered, quote, in connection with or incident to the employee's employment while on duty or while on postal premises, end quote. These two requirements are often interrelated. In determining whether these requirements were met, arbitrators generally evaluate, one, whether it was necessary for the employee to have the lost or damaged item in his or her possession at work, and two, whether the item's value was so great that the employee should not have risked losing it or damaging it at work. Four, not caused by employee negligence. The Postal Service need not pay a claim when a loss was caused in whole or in part by the negligent act of the employee. Negligent means failure to act with reasonable prudence or care. Five, not normal wear and tear. The loss or damage will not be compensated when it resulted from normal wear and tear associated with day-to-day living and working conditions. 6. Depreciated value. The amount of the loss claimed must reflect the depreciated value of the property. 7. 14 days to file a claim. Article 27 requires an employee to file a timely claim within 14 days after the loss or damage occurred. Generally, the employee is expected to know the proper procedures to file, including the time limits. 8. Written Claim PS Form 2146, Employee's Claim for Personal Property, is filed to document a claim. However, any written document may be treated as a proper claim if it provides substantiating information. Claims should be supported with evidence such as a sales receipt, a statement from the seller showing the price and date of purchase, or a statement from the seller concerning replacement value. 9. Appeal Procedure The employer must submit the claim form, which must include the supervisor's and steward's recommendation, together with all documentation submitted in connection with the claim to the Step B team within 15 days for determination. The Step B team will review the claim and issue a decision within 14 days of the receipt of the claim at Step B. The Step B team may 1. Resolve the claim 2. Declare an impasse or 3. Remand the case for specific information needed for decision at Step B. If the Step B team impasses the claim in whole or in part, the team must provide the national business agent a copy of the impasse, the claim form, and all documentation submitted with the claim. The team must also provide a copy of the impasse decision to the steward and supervisor whose recommendations are part of the claim form. The national business agent may appeal an impasse to expedited arbitration within 14 days after receipt of the Step B impasse. This procedure is the exclusive procedure for resolving employee claims. And here we have a memorandum of understanding between the USPS and the NALC regarding Article 27. To clarify the appeal process after a Step B team has impassed an employee claim, the parties agree to revise the language of the third, fourth, and fifth paragraphs of Article 27 of the National Agreement as follows. A decision letter impassing a claim in whole or in part will include notification of the union's right to appeal the decision to arbitration under Article 15. The Step B team will provide the national business agent a copy of the impasse referenced above, the claim form, and all documentation submitted in connection with the claim. The Step B team will also provide a copy of the impasse to the steward whose recommendation is part of the claim form. Date August 8, 2002. And thus ends Article 27. We move on to Article 28, Employer Claims. Uh, And there is an opening paragraph here before we get to the numbered sections. So, 
The parties agree that continued public confidence in the Postal Service requires the proper care and handling of USPS property, postal funds, and the mails. In advance of any money demand upon an employee for any reason, the employee must be informed in writing and the demand must include the reasons therefore. Employer Claims An employer claim is a demand made by management that a letter carrier pay for certain types of losses or damage to the mail or to other postal property. This paragraph requires the employer to inform an employee in writing in advance of the reasons for any money demand. In addition to the employee protections in Article 28, ELM Section 437, oh, I'm sorry, in addition to the employee protections in Article 28, ELM Section 437 sets forth procedures under which an employee may request a waiver of an employer claim. See the discussion of waiver, waiver provisions at the end of this article. 28.1, Section 1, Shortages and in Fixed Credits. Employees who are assigned fixed credits or vending credits shall be strictly accountable for the amount of the credit. If any shortage occurs, the employee shall be financially liable unless the employee exercises reasonable care in the performance of his or her duties. In this regard, the employer agrees to a. Continue to provide adequate security for all employees responsible for postal funds. b. Prohibit an employee from using the fixed credit or other financial accountability of any other employee without permission. C. Grant the opportunity to an employee to be present whenever that employee's fixed credit is being audited and if the employee is not available to have a witness of the employee's choice present. D. Absolve an employee of any liability for loss from cashing checks if the employee follows established procedures. And E. Audit each employee's fixed credit no less frequently than once every four months. Not applicable. Letter carriers are not ordinarily assigned fixed credits or vending credits, so this language does not apply to the letter carrier craft. However, note that language protecting letter carriers from employer claims involving faulty checks appears in Article 41.3.C. 28.2, Section 2, Loss or Damage of the Mails. An employee is responsible for the protection of the mails entrusted to the employee. Such employees shall not be financially liable for any loss, rifling, damage, wrong delivery of, or depredation on the mails, or failure to collect or remit COD funds unless the employee failed to exercise reasonable care. Reasonable care. Article 28.2 protects letter carriers against management claims resulting for the loss or damage of mails unless the employee, quote, failed to exercise reasonable care, end quote. 28.3, Section 3, Damage to USPS Property and Vehicles. An employee shall be financially liable for any loss or damage to property of the employer, including leased property and vehicles, only when the loss or damage was the result of the willful or deliberate misconduct of such employee. Willful, willful or deliberate. Article 28.3 protects letter carriers against management claims for the loss or damage to postal service property, including vehicles, unless the loss or damage resulted from the willful or deliberate misconduct of the letter carrier. 28.4.A. Yeah, 28.4.A. Section 4 Collection Procedure. If a grievance is A. Dude. 28.4.A. Section 4 Collection Procedure. A. 
If a grievance is initiated and advanced through the grievance arbitration procedure or a petition has been filed pursuant to the Debt Collection Act, regardless of the amount and type of debt, collection of the debt will be delayed until the disposition of the grievance and or petition has been had, either through settlement or exhaustion of contractual and or administrative remedies. Due process delay in collection. Article 28.4.A prohibits the Postal Service from collecting a debt, regardless of the amount or type of debt, until all grievances concerning the debt have been resolved. 28.4.B. B. No more than 15... No more... Oh, it says no more than 15%, but it's a typo. No more than 15% of an employee's disposable pay or 20% of the employee's biweekly gross pay, whichever is lower whichever is lower, may be deducted each pay period to satisfy a postal debt, unless the parties agree in writing to a different amount. The preceding article, Article 28, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Limit on deduction amount. Article 28.4.B sets absolute limits on the amount the employer may deduct from an employee's pay in collection of a debt unless the employee agrees otherwise, voluntarily, and in writing. Waiver of employer claims. Many employer claims involve mistakes in which carriers were overpaid. ELM Section 437 gives carriers the right to file for a waiver of a claim for overpayment. This section, titled Waiver of Claims for Erroneous Payment of Pay, outlines the steps that carriers must follow to request a waiver. Under this process, the carrier files PS Form 3074, Request for Waiver of Claim for Erroneous Payment of Pay. ELM section 437.32 states, and here's the, the relevant part, the applicant requests a waiver of a claim or a refund of money paid as a result of a claim by submitting PS form 3074 request for waiver of claim for erroneous payment of pay in triplicate to the installation head. The completed PS form 3074 must contain a. Information sufficient to identify the claim for which the waiver is sought, including the amount of the claim, the period during which the erroneous pay occurred, and the nature of the erroneous payment. B. A copy of the invoice and or demand letter sent by the Postal Service, if available, or a statement setting forth the date the erroneous payment was discovered. C. A statement of the circumstances that the applicant feels would justify a waiver of the claim by the Postal Service. D the dates and amount of any payments made by the employee in response to the claim. The installation head investigates the claim and writes a report of the investigation on the reverse side of the PS Form 3074. The report should contain the data and or attachments indicated in ELM Section 437.4. The form is then forwarded to Human Resources for review and further completion. The entire file is then sent to the Egan Accounting Service Center, ASC, ELM section 437.6 provides that the Egan ASC waives the claim if it can determine from a review of the file that all of the following conditions are met. A. Overpayment. Oh, I'm sorry. A. The overpayment occurred through administration error of the Postal Service. Excluded from consideration for waiver of collection are overpayments resulting from errors in timekeeping, key punching, machine processing of time cards or time credit, coding, and any typographical errors that are adjusted routinely in the process of current operations. B. Everyone having an interest in obtaining a waiver acted reasonably under the circumstances without any indication of fraud, misrepresentation, fault, or lack of good faith. 
C. Collection of the claim would be against equity and good conscience and would not be in the best interest of the Postal Service. Nothing contained in ELM Section 437 precludes an employee from requesting a waiver where the employer erroneously failed to withhold any employee's insurance premiums. And there's a citation here. And next we have a memo between the USPS and the NALC regarding debts of retired employees. If a retiree receives an invoice or notice of debt determination from the Postal Service after his or her separation date, the retiree may initiate a grievance through the local branch of his or her former employing office. Such dispute must be initiated directly to Step B. The grievance must be received at Step B within 30 days from the date the retiree first learned or may reasonably have been expected to have learned of the Postal Service's intent to collect the debt. Upon receipt of a dispute initiated under this memorandum, the Step B team will obtain any necessary records relevant to the debt from the relevant office, i.e. Egan Accounting Services or the former employee's installation. Once the records are obtained, the Step B team will give priority consideration to discuss and issue a decision on the case. Step B impasses appealed to arbitration will be, pers- will be processed pursuant to Article 15.4.C of the National Agreement. If a retiree also files an appeal under the Debt Collection Act, the grievance shall be closed. And finally, we move on to Article 29, because that's the end of Article 28. Article 29 is the limitation on revocation of driving privileges. And again, this one is not numbered, it's just one big box. An employee's driving privileges may be revoked or suspended when the on-duty record shows that the employee is an unsafe driver. Elements of an employee's on-duty record which may be used to determine whether the employee is an unsafe driver include, but are not limited to, traffic law violations, accidents, or failure to meet required physical or operation standards. The report of the Safe Driver Award Committee cannot be used as a basis for revoking or suspending an employee's driving privileges. When a revocation, suspension, or reissuance of an employee's driving privileges is under consideration, only the on-duty record will be considered in making a final determination. An employee's driving privileges will be automatically revoked or suspended concurrently with any revocation or suspension of state driver's license and restored upon reinstatement. Every reasonable effort will be made to reassign such employee to non-driving duties in the employee's craft or other, other crafts. In the event such revocation or suspension of the state's driver's license is with the condition that the employee may operate a vehicle for employment purposes, the employee's driving privileges will not be automatically revoked. When revocation or suspension of an employee's driving privileges is under consideration based on the on-duty record, Such conditional revocation or suspension of the state driver's license may be considered in making a final determination. Initial issuance. An employee shall be issued a certificate of vehicle familiarization and safe operation when such employee has a valid state driver's license, passes the driving test of the U.S. Postal Service, and has a satisfactory driving history. An employee must inform the supervisor immediately of the revocation or suspension of such employee's state driver's license. The reinstatement of driving privileges is addressed in the National Memorandum of Understanding below, and this is between the USPS and the NALC regarding reinstatement of driving privileges. It is hereby agreed by the USPS and the National Association of Letter Carriers that 1. The safety and health of employees is of significant concern to the parties. Accordingly, the parties further agree that the following is not intended to provide driving privileges to an employee when such privilege would place the safety of the public or the employee at risk. 2. 
the mere fact that an employee was involved in a vehicle accident is not sufficient to warrant automatic suspension or revocation of driving privileges or the automatic application of discipline. Three, when an employee's driving privilege is temporarily suspended as a result of a vehicle accident, a full review of the accident will be made as soon as possible, but not later than 14 days, and the employee's driving privileges must be either reinstated, suspended for a specified period of time not to exceed 60 days, or revoked as warranted. If the decision is to suspend or revoke the employee's driving privileges, the employee will be provided, in writing, the reasons for such action. 4. If an employee requests that revoked or suspended driving privileges be reinstated, management will review the request and make a decision as soon as possible, but not later than 45 days from the date of the employee's request. If the decision is to deny the request, the employee will be provided with a written decision stating the reasons for the decision. The management review must give a careful consideration to the nature, severity, and recency of the incidents which led to the revocation or suspension. Any driver's training or retraining courses completed from private schools, state-sponsored courses, or postal service training programs, especially when directly relevant to the incident that led to the revocation. Successful participation in an EAP program, when relevant to the reasons for revocation. The employee's state driving record, consistent with the criteria for initial certification of driving privileges as stated in the applicable handbook. The employer may waive these criteria if warranted in light of other factors listed above. 5. This memorandum of understanding is not intended to define the conditions or circumstances for which an employee's driving privileges may be suspended or revoked. Date August 19, 1995. Revocation or Suspension of Driving Privileges Driving privileges is a relatively new term in the Postal Service. For many years, the USPS issued a special postal operator's I- For many years, the USPS issued special postal operator's identification cards known as the OF346 and before that the SF46. This practice has been discontinued and currently there is no special postal driver certificate. Management may suspend or revoke a carrier's driving privileges under certain specified circumstances. You know, I got to pause here because in my last episode, I read through a bunch of memorandums of understanding and one of them referred to uh, that they can make you take an eye test if you uh, are getting an SF-46 license. And I had no idea what that was. I never heard of an SF-46. Well, here it is in the uh, contract. It is an outdated form of driver license that was specific to the post office. So whatever M document that was, I guess it no longer applies since we don't do the SF-46 anymore. Ah, the things you learn when you listen to the Classes of Mail podcast or when you host it for that matter. All right, moving on. Management may suspend or revoke a carrier's driving privileges under certain specified circumstances. Automatically, concurrently with the suspension or revocation of the employee's state driver's license, automatic reinstatement of postal driving privileges must follow reinstatement of the state driver's license. Temporarily, following a vehicle accident, in which case, quote, a full review of the accident will be made as soon as possible, but not later than 14 days, and the employee's driving privileges must either be reinstated, suspended for a specified period of time not to exceed 60 days, or revoked as warranted. Memorandum paragraph 3 where management can demonstrate that, quote, the on-duty record shows that the employee is an unsafe driver, end quote, Article 29, Paragraph 1. Additional rules regarding the suspension or revocation of driving privileges are contained in Section 42 of Handbook EL-804, Safe Driver Program. 
portions of this section are reprinted below. 421.2 for unsafe driving. 421.21 on-duty record. When the on-duty record shows that an employee is an unsafe driver, management may suspend or revoke the employee's postal service driving privileges. Elements of the on-duty record that may be used to suspend or revoke driving privileges include A. Traffic law violations B. Accidents C. Failure to meet motor vehicle operational standards D. Disregard for personal safety 421.22 Procedures The following guidelines apply. A. When management is considering the suspension, revocation, or reissuance of an employee's driving privileges, the final determination must be based solely on the employee's on-duty driving record. B. Management must automatically 1. Suspend or revoke an employee's driving privileges when a state driver's license is suspended or revoked. 2. Restore an employee's driving privileges when the state driver's license is restored. C. If the suspension or revocation states that the employee may operate a vehicle for employment purposes, then postal service driving privileges must not be suspended or revoked automatically. D. When management is considering suspension, revocation, or reissuance of an employee's driving privileges based on the on-duty driving record, the conditional suspension or revocation of a state driver's license may be considered in making the final determination. E. When a state driver's license is reinstated, the employee must provide documentation to that effect. 421.3 In Case of Accident When an employee is involved in a motor vehicle accident, A. There are no provisions for the automatic suspension of an employee's driving privilege based on the fact that the employee was involved in a motor vehicle accident. B. The individual circumstances surrounding each accident are assessed at the time of the accident to determine whether a temporary suspension of driving privileges is warranted. C. The supervisor must consider whether public safety or the employee's safety will be jeopardized if the employee is allowed to continue driving. D. The supervisor and or other postal service managers must assess factors related to the accident to include the following. 1. Employee's condition. For example, A. Shock. B. Fatigue. C. Impairment caused by use of alcohol or controlled substances. D. Other physical or emotional factors. 2. Seriousness of the unsafe driving practice, if any, that contributed to the accident. 422. Temporary suspension of driving privileges. If the supervisor cannot make an immediate determination based upon a review of the factors listed in 421.3, the supervisor may temporarily suspend the employee's driving privileges pending completion of an investigation. Once the investigation is completed, the supervisor can make the decision to suspend, revoke, or reinstate driving privileges. Driving privileges may be withheld pending investigation for no more than 14 calendar days after which the employee's driving privileges must be A. Reinstated B. Suspended for up to 60 days or C. Revoked If the employee's driving privileges are suspended or revoked, the supervisor must explain to the employee in writing the reasons for the action. 423. Decision Criteria Management makes a decision to suspend or revoke driving privileges according to the following criteria. A. Investigate and determine the driver's 1. Fault or lack of fault. Were the driver's actions the primary, the primary cause of the accident? 2. Degree of error. 3. Record. On-duty driving history, prior corrective actions related to motor vehicle operation. B. Consider the severity of the accident. C. Consider factors about the driver, such as 1. Training. Quality or absence of training in a particular driving activity. 2. Physical condition. 
did the employee meet the physical standards required by state licensing laws at the time of the accident? Note, a safe driver... A safe driver award committee determination about the preventability of an accident is not a factor to be considered when suspending or revoking driving privileges. Every reasonable effort to reassign. Even if a revocation or suspension of a letter carrier's driving privileges is proper, Article 29 provides that, quote, every reasonable effort will be made to reassign the employee in non-driving duties in the employee's craft or other crafts, end quote. This requirement is not contingent upon a letter carrier making a request for non-driving duties. Rather, it is management's responsibility to seek to find suitable work. National Arbitrator Snow held in blah 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 that management may not reassign an employee to temporary non-driving duties in another craft if doing so would result in a violation of the other craft's agreement. If it is not possible to accommodate temporary cross-craft assignments in a way that does not violate another craft's agreement, a letter carrier who is deprived of the right to an otherwise available temporary cross-craft assignment to a position in another craft must be placed on leave with pay until such time as he may return to work without violating either union's agreement. In accordance with Arbitrator Snow's award, in situations where city letter carriers temporarily lose driving privileges, the following applies. Management should first attempt to provide non-driving city letter carrier craft duties within the installation on the carrier's regularly scheduled days and hours of work. If sufficient carrier craft work is unavailable on those days and hours, an attempt should be made to place the employee in a carrier craft place the employee in carrier craft duties on other hours and days anywhere within the installation. If sufficient work is still unavailable, a further attempt should be made to identify work assignments in other crafts as long as placement of carriers in that work would not be to the detriment of employees of the other craft. If there is such available work in another craft but the carrier may not perform that work in light of the snow award, the carrier must be paid for the time that the carrier otherwise would have performed that work. Ah, and that is the end of Article 29, which means that is also the end of this episode. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, there is more to come. I have some, uh, some good episodes on tap, or at least I like to think they are. So I will catch you all next time.